See you have you have I, something on I, the tip of your tongue. It's just not coming yet. <laughs> well, the atonement is um, it's it's a word that we often use. I mean, it can be used in different ways, but we often use it when we're talking about what Christ accomplished on the cross, um, His death for us. Um, I'm going to say we're going to be looking at, at specific words in greater detail in the future, but just. I'm just using it here just as a general catch-all. Um, this is what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, all of Christ's work is very important. Um, uh, I mean, one of the one of the central things that we proclaim as Christians to unbelievers is the resurrection of Christ. Um, that's a very important thing. Um, so I don't want to denigrate any of those things, but we just want to do just kind of a narrow focus on what Christ accomplished in his death on the cross. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, and Ryan should be um, covering a few of these as we go through, so uh, you'll have a little bit of switching back and forth between us. Um, and just just for your further edification, the, the basic outline is more or less from John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Um, this, is, this is a great book. Um, of, of all the of all the Christian books I've read that have, that have had a real impact on me, this is easily in the top five. Highly recommend you read it. And uh, Pastor Rick tells me that we have some back in the resource area. So um, it's a great read. Um, we're going to be covering a lot of the same material. This is redemption accomplished and applied. So accomplished is the side we're talking about. The back half of the book is redemption applied, which is where the Spirit actually applies redemption to us. So that's not, we're not going to be covering that stuff in here, but it's, it's great material. So I would highly recommend you read it. Um, you'll get a lot of overlap with what we're talking about in the first half of the book, but um, he'll talk about some things that I don't go into, and I'll cover some things that he doesn't go into. So um, I would highly recommend reading that book if you have the opportunity. So we want to talk about, so this morning about the centrality of the crucifixion and the necessity of the crucifixion. Um, so first, with the centrality of the crucifixion, um, well-known passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there, Paul is viewing this as of first importance. Um, earlier in the book, chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, uh, Paul says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
So why was the message of Christ crucified central? That is a question for the audience. I guess it's, it's, been, it's been a few months since we've been in person. So I should just say, I'm going to be asking you lots of questions, and I expect answers. And if you guys have questions in the middle, you know, feel free to interrupt me. Preferably not mid-sentence, but you know, when, there's a, when I take a breath, you know, jump in there and ask a question. So, um, so the question, again, is why was the message of Christ crucified central? Well, uh, going, so basically starting from going Old Covenant sacrificial, they had to have a, a spotless lamb, mm-hmm. uh, so completely unblemished, but that was a very temporary, mm-hmm. temporal, no, not temporal, temporary sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to uh, give a full, uh, I guess, cleansing mm-hmm. to us, we had to have a perfect human, and as since we can't be perfect, mm-hmm. it had to be God. Wow, this, I, I just sit down. We just, we just got the lessons. So. <laughs> no, that's that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's 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 just vitally important for our salvation, right? A- apart from the the crucifixion of Christ, we have no way to be right before Holy God. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're gonna be. We're going to be talking about that in detail, especially as, as we go through the, the necessity of the, um, the necessity of the crucifixion. So, I mean, we've kind of already answered this. You, you gave a really, probably a too thorough answer for me here. So why did the crucifixion happen? Is there, can anybody expand on what Mark said? <laughs> What's that? Because God forwarded it. Okay, all right, that's... That's a that's a very broad picture answer. Yes, <laughs> God ordained it, so yes, it happened. So. And God promised that He made promises throughout the uh, Old Testament, so starting with Adam and Eve, He promised that He would crush the heel of the serpent, mm-hmm. and uh, and He made promises to Abraham too, uh, and through the uh, Mosaic Covenant, there are promises there. But really, as Mark was saying, it has, our, our, our problem was sin all along. And that even though, like, Israelite people, when you look back to their redemption from Egypt, God was showing them over and over again, no, you need to be redeemed from sin. Like, even when they got to the Mount there, many of them were destroyed because they worshipped the cow rather than him. And, uh, Point out again and again the problem of sin. It goes back to his promise regarding the fall, where all mankind uh, came under the dominion of sin. And so on the cross, Jesus did crush the serpent, but he also redeemed the people to himself. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. So, so our, our problem with sin, that's a, that's a big part of it, and God, God has to deal with that somehow. But the question is. Is that the way God has to deal with it? I mean, that's that's obviously what He did. Um, God dealt with our sin by the crucifixion of Christ. But was that necessary? Um, could God have just said, "You know what? I'm gracious. I will I will just forgive people." No. No. Right answer. <laughs> <laughs> but why not? Well, in the original covenant, death was a penalty for sin, and there had to be an atonement for, uh, for that. And you had to satisfy God's wrath. Mm-hmm. The only way uh, a sinner dying, uh, dying for his own sins would not satisfy God's wrath. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, you guys are just too good at your answers here. Because I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, oh, do I even need to say this anymore? Um, we need to be reminded of this. Yes. Because, like, you guys, are, you, guys, you guys obviously don't need to be reminded too much. Um, so um, one question that comes up, and I don't, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on this. Um, I have taught this material in the past, and this has actually been, like, a real contentious uh, point uh, in the past. But I don't think we'll have a problem here, but... Um, what about the idea that, I mean, God is he's all-powerful, right? There's, there's nothing he can't do. Um, Mark 10, 27, uh, Jesus looked 
at them and said, what man, uh, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Um, does that mean that God could just forgive sin? I mean, we've heard people say no, but it's like, does that does that somehow restrict God's omnipotence? God is never going to do anything against his But also, to go at that point, First John it says God is faithful and just to forgive his mm-hmm. He's not going to deny his own justice. And as Phil was saying earlier, he said there was the penalty was sin. And uh, God does not deny himself. Two mm-hmm. things, uh, oh, is in Hebrews where it said the promise was based on two things that are unbreakable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. God, God's not going to deny his own. Right. Yeah, I have that right in front of me, actually. It's part of my notes. So you guys are just on point today. Hebrews 6, uh, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge uh, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So it's impossible for God to lie. Impossible for God to violate his justice. So we can properly speak of things being impossible for God to do without in any way restricting his omnipotence. God has all power, and there's nothing that's too hard for him to do. But there's certain things that he wouldn't do because they are against his nature. So It's kind of like a, if you go to Romans 9, right, where it's essentially it's kind of like a stereotypical like fruit text chapter everybody goes to, but... It's essentially the same question that Paul says, where he's like, you know, what if God just you know, desiring to show his own justice and his own grace and goodness, you know, has made certain, you know, people for his glory and certain people for his judgment in order to show that he might be just and good to all. Very true. Very true. So, the problem here then is God is just. He can't, he can't um, just waive his justice. Um, he has to deal with that. Um, the Bible <coughs> tells us repeatedly that God is just. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Uh, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Um, Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And Nahum 1.3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So... throw this out. You guys have already answered it, but the question is, if God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, how can we escape punishment? And the answer you guys have already given, obviously, is um, through the cross of Christ. Um, Did God have a choice in whether or not to save sinners? Well, because he promised Adam, Mm -hmm. because he promised Adam uh, a redemption and a way out. You will you will not go against his promise. So yes. no. So at that yes, at that point he has committed himself. He has promised he will provide redemption. But before he made that promise to Adam, without any consideration to to any basically any revelation he gives to mankind, um, was God under obligation to save sinners? No. Yeah. But but he had determined even before time that he was going sure. to do that. That's why he would make that promise. Right. Right. But his determination was not out of obligation. It was out of his own good free will and his own love for fallen mankind. He chose to save uh, some of mankind. But he's under no obligation to do that. But then the question is, once he has committed to doing it, which we've clearly seen he has did he have any other way other than the atonement and that's a, that's a question people have asked throughout history 
Would there be, is there any other possible way he could have done it other than by sending Jesus Christ to live as a man and die a cursed death? I, I can think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane asking for the cup to be taken, begging for another way. And the answer was no. He has to prove that, so I would say no. Well, because when you look at the priestly ministry of Christ, there's no other way because you have to go to the Holy of Holies to offer your atonement. There's no other way that it could have been applied or accomplished. Jesus specifically says it is necessary in Luke on the road to Emmaus. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ... Well, it's a rhetorical question, but... Right, yes. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Yeah, yeah. So we have Jesus' express statement. We have the nature of the pattern we have in the sacrificial system. Uh, we have Jesus demonstrating through his prayer that like, he would like some other way. Um, but the answer is no. There is no other way. Um, but I don't think I even need to teach this. They all know this. <laughs> so, um, Another, just to, just to throw another one in here that I have in my notes, and you guys are doing great. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 31 through 34, uh, says, What shall we say then uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So here we see the demonstration of God's love. This, this, this basically Paul telling people is like, look, God went this far in his love for you to save you. Um, what if the cross wasn't necessary? Could we make sense of this passage? What if God could have saved somebody, could have saved his people in some other way than by sending his son to die? Would it then be the ultimate expression of love to send Christ to die? No. It'd actually be kind of silly. Like, if, if there was another way. I mean, that's a, that was... I mean, we can, like, look at it and say, oh, well, he's God. You know, Jesus knew he was going to be raised from the dead. Um, you know, it's not really that big of a, not really that big of a cost. Um, but I think if we look at it that way, I think we're misunderstanding things. And I think if you look throughout Scripture, you see that God views this as a great cost. Um, this, this was not something that God's just like, oh, yeah, he's cake, no problem. Um, it, it was... Um, uh, just a great demonstration of love that the father delivered over his son to death. Uh, it was a great anguish that the son went through um, in accomplishing redemption. Um, and if, if there was some other way, um, then this just becomes something bizarre rather than a great expression of love where this is the only way. This is the only way that sinful mankind can be redeemed and God is willing to do what it takes because of his love for us. So, um, I think that's, the, that's really the only way we can make sense of that. Could you also, I mean, it could also be that, you know, we as, we as fallen beings tend to radically underestimate the science of sin and radically overestimate, you know, our worth. Mm -hmm. We do. We absolutely do. Coach Chris, yes. it, evidently there are people who would push back against mm -hmm. this doctrine. So what, what would be their reason for that? Are they seeking to protect God's freedom to do whatever he wants? Yeah, that, I, I, I am not an, an expert in their positions. I know uh, John Murray specifically mentions that Augustine and Anselm um, held a view that basically God could have done it, you know, 
in who knows how many different ways, you know, because he's, he's all-powerful and he can do what he wants, and we don't want to constrain God and say he has to do things this way. Um, but, I mean, John Murray doesn't go into any greater detail, really, on why they hold that position, um, and I have not read enough Augustine or... Did say that? Did I say Anselm or Aquinas? It was Aquinas, not Aquinas. Aquinas. Yeah, Anselm held the other way. Okay, sorry. And actually, John Calvin held with that that it wasn't necessary. Okay, I did not know that. I, I, I was just reading Burkhoff uh-huh. on this systematic theology. Right. He, Bobnick and Calvin are a couple of names, other okay. names. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to say maybe, uh, maybe, what did you say you were reading? Uh, Bobbing. Bobbing? Yeah. Um, so that, that might be, is that the Bobbing? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe. It's systematic theology. Yeah. Look at Bobbing's systematic theology if you want a more in-depth uh, look at it. But I mean, I think that probably is largely what it is. It's just, it can be kind of scary saying, oh, well, God has to do it this way. It's like, well, aren't we kind of like, the phrase is putting God in a box. Um, but um, I think, um I think really the only way we can make sense of what scripture teaches for all these reasons that you guys have presented, uh, you know, just the sacrificial system and the uh, Christ prayer and um, the just, just the necessities of uh, God's holiness, his justice, and uh, the necessity of dealing with sin. Um, I, I think we are on safe ground saying that this is the only way it could happen. God had to redeem us through a substitutionary sacrifice if he was going to redeem us at all. He could have, in his sovereignty, just said, I'm just sending you all to hell. Could have done that. But once he committed, I am going to redeem a people for myself. I think we're on safe ground to say, this is the way he had to do it. Bill, did you have something uh, else there? Burkhoff's Burkhoff. systematic theology. Okay. That's the one I was So, one of the things that, and this was touched on slightly, um, the incarnation is a is a big part of it. Um, it's necess- it's necessary because of the God, the justice of God. Um, but there's more specifics about what's necessary. Um, if it was necessary for somebody to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute. Was it necessary that Jesus Christ be that substitute? Could somebody else have been our substitute? Could God have sent an angel to die in our place? We need someone who's perfectly good, so an angel would fit the message, right? But also, we need someone who can cover the sins of all. somebody who is a worthy sacrifice for humanity so they have to be fully person mm-hmm. as well. So. Right. so even if an angel could somehow cover a multitude of people right. that still wouldn't cut it because an angel isn't a man, right? right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verse 45 thus it is written the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So why do you think Paul compared Adam and Christ in this way and called Christ the last Adam? Christ has fulfilled it for those who have to do Right. So we have the covenant of works. We have um, Adam as a federal head. We have Christ as a federal head. Those who are in Adam, they fall with Adam. Those who are in Christ are redeemed with Christ. Um, 
So what was the uh, what was the command given to Adam in the covenant of works? Do this and live. Okay. That's correct. Not straight not straight from the Genesis text, but I I I agree with your exegesis. <laughs> In Genesis, uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what's the consequence of disobeying God? Yeah, yeah. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So, what's the emphasis in verse 21? And I guess I didn't ask you to turn there, so I'll read 21 again. Um, for as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. So what's the emphasis there? Well, the first sin was caused by man, mm-hmm. and the redemption was through a blameless man. Right? Right? So we've got a man in both cases. So would it be reasonable then to say that we have to have I mean, we've already said it, but I mean, just like trying to draw it out from the text, would it be reasonable to say then that the person who redeems us needs to be a man? It can't just be an angel or something like that. It really needs to be an actual man. And it is because of the covenant of works. Um, and in the covenant of works, the consequence of disobedience is death. And the consequence of obedience is life. Do this and live. And then you got the act of passive obedience too mm-hmm. to fulfill this covenant of works. Uh-huh. Because they could have just sent Jesus down as a man like that and then he could have died, but mm-hmm. he would not have gone through and obeyed the law mm-hmm. as a Yeah. That that is a that is a good point. One we'll probably come back to as we're studying this, but is everybody familiar with the, the terms active and passive obedience and what that's talking about? Um, just a just a brief like explanation. Um, the the passive obedience. I I mean different people have understood this different ways, but I'm, I think the proper way to understand this is that the passive obedience uh, of Christ is referring to the fact that um, Christ was punished for sin in our place. He was our substitute. He was regarded by God the Father as having this stain of sin, and God punished that. And so he obeyed in that he took our punishment. Uh, But simply having our sins punished is not all that is required for the covenant of works. It is not all that is required for us to gain eternal life. There must also be a life of obedience. And so Christ came and he lived a perfect life, always doing whatever the Father directed him to do in perfect obedience for us. And so, um, and in truth, his obedience and his suffering was not something that we divide simply into, oh, it's like, oh, well, his life of obedience and his death of suffering. But his obedience and suffering encompassed the whole of his life and that he suffered for us in his life leading up to the cross and even as he's suffering on the cross, he is being obedient to the Father to the point of death. So it's, we don't want to think of it in terms of time. But what we want to think of it in terms of is that there are the penal sanctions of the law. Uh, if you disobey, you, you deserve death. And so that was meted out on Christ on our behalf. And there is also uh, the aspect of the law, do this and live. Obey me and you will have eternal life. Um, and that was accomplished by Christ as he lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. Any questions on that? That's a, that's a good point to bring up. We can blow 
Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we, we, we've got, I guess, 13 weeks, so as long as we don't stray too far from the atonement, then, then that will be okay. So. Well, how does Christ's death actually work on our behalf? <laughs> well, we're going to be talking a lot about how it works on our behalf. Um, let's see. So where was I in my notes here? Um, okay. Um, Galatians uh, 4, 4 and 5. Uh, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now this is just reinforcing what we've already talked about, but what, are, what, what two characteristics of Christ's birth does Paul list in verse 4 of Galatians 4? I'll read it again that way. I know I'm not saying turn here, so... Um, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman and under the law. Okay. And are these things incidental? Is Paul just kind of just in, in his description of what happened? Is he, is he just mentioning these things? Or does he have um, a specific purpose? Are these, are these things that, that are necessary for uh, redemption to be accomplished? It's very much a covenant of works idea. It's like he was born under this obligation to obey. Failing to obey results in death. Obeying results in life. Um, so you have born of a woman, so human, born under the law, so this covenant of works idea. In the next sentence, in verse 5, seems to flow right out of that to redeem those. Absolutely true. It's in order to redeem those under the law, and he had to be born under the law. Um, and there's a purpose statement right there as well, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. Like we don't we don't get the adoption of sons unless these conditions are met. Um, so again, I think we're on very safe ground in saying that all of these things are necessary. Now I am going to say turn here because we're going to we're going to be in um, Hebrews for a bit. I've got several passages in Hebrews. Um, so Hebrews chapter two is where we're going to start. Hebrews two. I'm going to read verses ten through eighteen. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore... Children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has uh, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what does verse 14 say that he did? Um, 
14. What does what does it say that he did? He partook in flesh and blood. And is there a purpose given? In order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Yeah. And does it sound like the purpose could have been accomplished if he had not partaken in flesh and blood? Now, that's, that would that would make it pretty hard reading, right? What about verse 17? What, what's accomplished there? And he had to be made, made like his brothers in the flesh, or in every respect. Mm-hmm. And, and so that he can be a high priest in the service of God. Mm-hmm. So, and is, is there a further purpose in verse 18? Because he has suffered, he's able to help those who are So all of these things, that all of these benefits that Christ accomplishes for us, um, the author of Hebrews seems to think that the incarnation is an absolute necessity in order for these things to happen. It really is an integral part of redemption. Um, flip over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For whenever commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and sprinkled uh, both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Excuse me. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So could mankind have been forgiven without the shedding of blood? No, it's pretty explicit, right? You have to have the shedding of blood. Um, why would blood be necessary for the forgiveness of sins? Because the punishment or the consequence of sin is death. Mm-hmm. There, there's no way getting around the death. Yeah. So whether it's our death or the sacrificial death for mm-hmm. us, death has to be accomplished. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So we have a, a substitutionary death talked about here. Was was the blood of animals sufficient to forgive sins? I know we like you answered this like my first question, so <laughs> like I said, you just covered it all. But so was was the was the blood of animals sufficient to forgive sins? Temporarily. Temporarily, okay. So no, it wasn't sufficient. Right. Uh, it was a substitute for a short period of time. Right. And it says in verse twenty-three, it's a copy of the heavenly things. Sorry, it's a copy of the heavenly things. Right. In verse twenty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's you have these heavenly realities, and it takes something more than the blood of animals to deal with that. We have the picture in the Old Testament, and the animals were sufficient for that picture, for that type that we have in the Old Testament. But ultimately, for our sins to be forgiven, the blood of animals is not sufficient. Let's flip over to Hebrews ten, or you may not even have to change the page. You know you're printing there, but Hebrews 10 uh, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So again, animals, it's not enough. That's not going to cover it. See that in verse 4. Um, so what do we see about the animal sacrifices in verse 5? Right? Yeah? That's not really what God's after, right? And then what's the what's the contrast? Right there in that same verse. God prepared a body. Right? He, uh, it was Christ's body and he prepared it. Right? Yeah. The body of Christ was prepared as the true sacrifice. The sacrifice that God really needs in order to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. The blood of bulls and goats, that's, that's never going to cover it. That's not really what God needs in order to satisfy his divine wrath. But it must be um, the body that he has prepared, the body of Christ. It is interesting, though, Chris, in, in verse 3, mm-hmm. that you know the reason, or one of the reasons why he gave us the sacrifices mm-hmm. of, of the animals was to remind us of our sin. So it's not that God needed it, but we needed it mm-hmm. to remind us who we are because we we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure that like living in that culture where you're having daily sacrifices and then you know more important sacrifices that happen at various times throughout the year, I mean, it really just should have been stamped on the, on the mindset of the people of God that this is, it's, I'm a sinner. It's like, we, we, we can't stop offering these sacrifices because we just keep sinning. Um, and so it would hopefully make people very mindful of their sin and very mindful of what is necessary in order to take away sin. Um, what's indicated in verse 10? The sacrifice is a once for all thing. It just takes care of it, right? Wipes it all out. All of the sin of God's people is dealt with by the sacrifice of Christ. So, we've certainly established that um, it had to be a man to die for us. Um, And I know we've answered this question already, but um, just to look at what Scripture says in this respect, could some other man than Christ have died for us. Why not? It had to be a perfect, spotless, Mm -hmm. without sin, which we are unable Mm -hmm. to be. Right? Yes, that is absolutely correct. So Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does does good and never sins. Pretty clear statement right there, right? Everybody sings. Hebrews 7, probably just a page or two back, uh, verses 26 through 28. uh, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those uh, high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since... He did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So there we see, right, that Christ is the perfect sinless sacrifice for us. 
So that was what was necessary, right? We needed a man, and we needed him to be a perfect man. Now, Christ... Um, I, I want to go back to the to the active and passive obedience. Um, when we talk about satisfying the justice of God, um, what we're looking at is that we need a righteousness, right? We need our sins forgiven, but we also need a righteousness provided for us. Um, and in what Christ did, that is what we receive. We receive the righteousness of Christ. Second um, Corinthians 5.21 uh, should be a well-known passage to most people. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what, what do we see there in what we've been talking about respect to the active and passive obedience and the sacrifice of Christ. The first part would be the passive and the second part would be the passive. He took our sin upon him and therefore God punished him. And then we are given his righteousness. We actually become the righteousness of God. So that's that's what we receive: the perfect righteousness of Christ, who is God. So we need a righteousness that only God can provide, and this is the only way we can we can receive it. Um, Romans chapter three, verse twenty-six, speaks of um, the way God has accomplished salvation as the way that God is both just and the one who justifies sinners. It's the only way that that could be accomplished. Um, I mean, this again, you guys you guys have answered it this way so many times throughout the throughout the, the study we've done here, but um, that is just that's the necessity there. Is that God's justice demands a punishment for sin and a perfect righteousness. And so, if man is sinful, which man is sinful, and God is going to redeem uh, people from humanity, which he is doing, this is the only way he can do it without violating his justice. Um, he has accomplished salvation through the cross of Christ um, in this way so that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Any questions or thoughts about any of that? It all makes sense. Sounds like it was larger review, so that's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> the, other, the only other thing I, when you go into is the peace that we get through Christ's home. Mm -hmm. We are. We will be talking about that. I, th I think that's next week. <laughs> I think that's next week. So, yes, we, we will be talking about, um, let's see, what is it? I, I, don't, I don't actually have the, let's, let's see if I can just get it out of the table of contents. I can't. Um, I haven't read that book, by the way. But, yeah, it's, I, we'll be talking about redemption. We'll be talking about ransom. Um, let's see, we'll be... Uh, Reconciliation, yeah. So, so reconciliation is specifically the one we're going to be talking about, where we talk about the peace we have with God. So we're we're going to be talking about the work of Christ, what it accomplished in various ways. The Scripture talks about it. So we're going to get into those details. So this isn't this isn't the whole picture, but this is basically the purpose of this lesson here is to talk about the centrality and the necessity of the atonement. Basically, why it had to be this way. But as far as like how it all works out. Um, what you know, all the all the facets of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we'll be looking at over the next several weeks. So. It's also very useful too, because like even like when you think about it, you know, even though it might largely be a review, it's very practical too. Because even you know, what we were talking about, you know, why does it, why is it necessary that Jesus Christ had to be a man, and yet at the same time be able to, you know, why couldn't it be a man? Why couldn't it be, you know, somebody else? Um, 
it's really, you know, you think about that, you think about, okay, well then, it affects the doctrine of the Trinity and stuff like that. So then, you know, when you evangelize people like, you know, you know Christians or who might be, you know, in other religions and stuff like that, it, it touches, you know, the gospel too. So. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, the atonement is, is one of those things that gets a lot of attack from unbelievers and people who even claim to be believers um, because a, a lot of people really don't like it. I mean, you, you see a lot of people who claim to be Christian in some respect and who are just appalled at this idea of a wrathful God pouring out his wrath on his son. Um, I'm sorry? Who's also innocent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but the thing is, like, oddly enough, these people, oftentimes, they want to preserve the crucifixion as, you know, as something happened, because they're still claiming to be Christians, but they want to reinterpret it in some other way. But to me, I think that just makes things much more appalling, because then you have stripped away the necessity of the atonement, and then, then you have God sending Christ to the cross, and it wasn't necessary. And that just seems absolutely terrible. I, I mean, to me, the cross is a beautiful thing, not because it's beautiful in and of itself, but because this was the only way that God could rescue humanity, and he was willing to do it. All right, well, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, truly, we are in awe of your great love for us. God, we, we know you could have just consigned us all to hell because we are completely undeserving of any of your love or mercy. Uh, but, Lord, you have taken upon yourself this great cost in order to redeem a people for yourself. And, and God, we are just in awe of your, your love for us and your commitment to your own holiness and justice and that you maintain all of who you are in all your attributes um, and, and still are able to uh, accomplish salvation uh, without any violence to your nature. And Lord, it's, it's just so far beyond us, so far above us. Uh, Lord, greater than anything that the religions of man can come up with. Lord, you in your infinite wisdom have accomplished salvation in a way that to your people is beautiful it is the power of God it is the wisdom of God and Lord I just pray that we would continue to meditate on these things that they would affect our lives cause us to, to love you more to obey you more and uh, Lord just that you would be glorified in Christ's name Amen.